Hello, and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Ashida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. I'm Liz Lopato. I'm The Verge's science editor. And uh, I, I actually, as, as per usual, am uh, going to be pushing some um, <clears throat> scandalous content. <laughs> I hope you guys are ready. I love um, when science gets scandalous. I, I like that you bring us like the hottest, most TMZ-friendly <laughs> parts of science news to this podcast. It really helps, helps me understand. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you probably know, uh, I'm just guessing because this has been known for a minute, um, that humans and, and Neanderthals um, interbred um, and that we're all carrying a little bit of Neanderthal DNA. Can, you, can I pause for one second? Why, why do we call them Neanderthals now instead of Neanderthals? I, I think, I, you know, I think you can call them either way and still be correct. I just okay. was taught Neanderthal. Um, really? But, I, I only started hearing that recently, like a couple years ago. Huh? I, I yeah, don't I don't. I, I, as far as I know, both both pronunciations are fine. Although I would not be entirely surprised to find out that this is part of my ongoing struggle to pronounce anything correctly, um, and that I am wrong. <laughs> well, it sounds it sounds very Irish. It sounds like an Irish Neanderthal. So, <laughs> Neanderthal. Oh, Neanderthal. Uh, <laughs> anyway, continue. Well, so so we knew that they had definitely uh, interbred with us, right? Like that was just like a thing we knew. Sure. But it turns out um, this actually happened a lot earlier than we thought, um, because it turns out like when you sequence the Neanderthal genome, um, that that it already is it already contains human DNA. Um, so it looks like it looks like uh, it was inherited from people who migrated out of Africa, um, and that they must have migrated out of Africa about uh, fifty thousand years earlier than our previous estimates uh, in order for that to work, because um, humans had definitely contributed DNA by about a hundred thousand years ago. <laughs> Whoa! So, um, in addition to being a racy finding from Sexy Sexy Science. Um, mm-hmm. We also have um, a really interesting piece of evidence that our sort of our timeline for when humans left Africa um, is not totally correct. Um, and this may show proof that not only did Neanderthals and humans interbreed once, uh, they did so many times. Hmm. So does that mean, I mean, obviously that is, is that like a vestige then of humans like mating with the thing that they their their previous uh, stage of evolution or what like what explains that and what was the result of it um well so <laughs> uh humans and neanderthals were running around at the same time um and it's not unlike you know when horses breed with donkeys except that it looks like the the the, the offspring from these inter- interbreeding events must have been sexually viable Mm-hmm. Um, so they were close enough for, for us to interbreed with, even though they were not the same species. But 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 different enough, obviously, that you have these um, big morphological differences. I'm sorry. Just big differences in, like, the way the skull looks, for instance. Sure. Um, they're, they're, you know, not quite the same thing, but close enough that you can you can still um, go back and forth. I mean, that's that's the thing that happens in speciation, actually, um, where you have periods before the... the the species are so distinct that they can't interbreed anymore where you you see a little bit of gene transfer so Mm -hmm. given that these guys were essentially our cousins you know that that's sort of i think where this comes from interesting so like is this is this uh is that considered is that is that considered bestiality i don't want to take it there but like (laughs) (laughs) um is it a cousin (laughs) (laughs) i don't know um I mean, they would be they would be primates like us, and very very close to us, right? Sure. Um, which is hard for us to, to to imagine now because the closest primates we have are chimps and uh, bonobos, both of right. which are remarkably different. Right. So you would need to imagine somebody that that is almost human, is human like, very human like. You know, Neanderthals had art, they had culture, they seemed to bury their dead. There were you know a lot of things that you associate with humanity. Their their society also had that just looked different enough. To, to be a different species. Hmm, interesting. All right. Well, um, I, 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 there's another another. I guess this is scandalous bit of science news that you wanted to share with us about. <laughs> yeah, about I'm bringing, salamanders. I'm bringing the outlaw science today. Uh-huh. So, um, so the U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife, in order to prevent this um, salamander fungus that was spreading, banned the import and interstate. Uh, uh, trading of about 200 species of salamanders. Fine. But it turns <laughs> out 
that the U.S. is a major hotspot for salamander smuggling and and for reptile smuggling in general. And like, there's there are whole crazy books about this. Like, if you like, if you think co- smuggling cocaine is wild, you should see the people who smuggle like boa constrictors. Oh yeah, Craziness. and birds like oh, like tropical birds. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's just like, whatever people do it, uh, and it, it's it's a tremendous problem. And so we uh, we got this uh, report from a freelancer, uh, Alexandra Sola, and she talked to a number of pet store owners, um, as well as you know fish and wildlife, and tried to get a sense of whether this was going to create a black market in smuggling. And the pet store owners all think yes. There is particularly the ban on interstate travel. They think is bad. Are salamanders in that high demand? I mean, it's not like cocaine where, like, oh, you can go through a bunch of cocaine in a period of time. Like, I mean, how many salamanders are you going to go through? <laughs> well, so there there are actually um, estimates about how many millions of dollars <laughs> people are going to lose. Wow. So pet stores overall are um, scheduled to, they're, they, they're estimated to lose about $10 million in direct and indirect costs. So, like, salamander sales plus, like, the tank and whatever else. And uh, a lot of these distributors are are smaller. But there is a total uh, market for salamanders as pets. I actually cut this line out of the story where, where, you know, Alex is like, oh, you you know, it might surprise you, but a lot of people actually own salamanders as pets. And I was like, that doesn't really surprise me. Well, no, that's actually the only (laughs) thing I would think of for buying or shipping salamanders would be for pets. That's my question. (laughs) I'm just like, I also can't think of that many people I know who own a salamander. Exotic pet people... um, can get really intense, you know, and like not not everybody who owns a salamander is you know the kind of person who necessarily gets intense about it, but like some of them do. Um, hmm. But the other piece of it, of course, is that one of the distributors we spoke to uh, was distributing to NASA, and that was across state lines. Um, so he he's probably going to shut down his distribution. But yes, yeah, so there's also a scientific market for salamanders as well. But like the the market for pets is so intense that like after species are discovered, they've stopped saying where. Because people would go in and basically scoop up these new species, which are usually pretty rare, and then sell them. And there are, like in the story, there are at least two examples of this exact thing occurring, which is why scientists no longer say where they've discovered a new species of salamander. They just don't want you to go and scoop the salamander and sell it. Man, I'm Google searching salamanders right now. They are so cute. Oh, my God. They got yeah. a big smile. Yeah. I'll get a salamander. Why not? <laughs> oh, and they get so tiny. Okay. All right. Well, this could go on for another hour. I could just keep Googling <laughs> images of salamanders. Uh, one, one thing from, from the entertainment side this week, uh, we actually got an exclusive on this from Netflix. So Netflix, I uh, this was announced during CES, at CES, which I was not at this year. But Netflix expanded, like, massively this year. They'd already been in a, a number of countries, and not, you know, they're not just U.S. and Canada. They're, they've been in Europe. But now they're in 130 countries, and they are rolling out a lot of programming that kind of reflects that. Narcos is sort of an early example of that. You had a, a show that was not primarily in English. Um, it was sort of a, a Spanish and English and um, kind of not necessarily made for a, an American audience. And then there's a French show called Marseille that's coming out this spring. So they're really, I mean, they're kind of becoming a global TV station, which is something that feels very, to me, feels very futury. I mean, I feel like when I was a kid, I always wanted to watch like TV shows in Japan and you had to go to like a bootleg video rental store and, and get, you know, uh, VHS recordings of stuff from TV or like my mom's friend would send us VHSs and it was like, it was always wonderful and foreign to see what people were watching in, in other countries. And now that's becoming pretty possible with Netflix. So they, um, in because of this, they are uh, unveiling a new algorithm for their recommendation engine, which is like kind of something that I guess, for a long time, that was what Netflix was known for, right? Like you would get a recommendation for cerebral action a feminist sci-fi cyberpunk stories or something Boy, that <laughs> sounds like, like one of my recommendation categories right, right there right. I, i'm pretty sure i'm just like matching together <laughs> several of mine um or like some you know quiet period dramas with a strong female lead you know uh, i get a lot of uh, <laughs> nature documentaries like you know um a lot of data david attenborough for some reason yeah yeah no, I have a bunch of those now because I went through a big string of watching uh, some some Planet Earth-like uh, offshoots. David Attenborough narrated one, so I mean that never that never gets old. But so now this new um, algorithm 
where before it was global, it was it reflected everybody who was watching Netflix in the entire world. Now it is going to be local as well. So it will reflect both your history as a watcher and also what people are watching in your immediate area. So if, you know, the example that they use is like, if you're an anime fan in Sweden, you will see what other Swedish anime fans will be watching. Um, and, and some of this is interesting. Um, I kind of, you know, I wish it was something you could toggle like Google has different modes you can toggle in based on your own personal history and then like just a general unbiased world search. I kind of wish you could have both because I'd be very interested to just be randomly fed some stuff that like somebody in India is watching on Netflix. Yeah, I also I I would love to see what someone who has similar tastes to mine but lives in another country is watching because I feel like that's like for me that's like one of the the problems with uh, trying to get international work totally. is like just even knowing where to look for it yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, you know and like every once in a while I'll get lucky and I'll, I'll stumble across a director who I really like and I'll you know find an interview that's in translation and I'll read who their influences are and that gives me a couple of other directors to go look for um, but it's really very haphazard <laughs> yeah. so you know yeah, so I feel like, uh, you know, I, I, I understand why they want to do this just to make it more manageable. I think, you know, the average Netflix customer in the U.S. is not necessarily going to be interested in what somebody on the other side of the world is watching. But, you know, it, 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 I, at any rate, I am I am kind of very excited about the prospect of all these, you know, different different shows and different, you know, original movies and stuff made for different audiences all being in one place and being promoted pretty much equally, you know, like that as far as like the way that Netflix promotes their shows. Like we're getting promotional stuff for, you know, this French series and we're getting we're getting prom- everything promoted to us in the same way that like Orange is the New Black is. So I think that's that's kind of cool. Um but Let's let's move on. So, uh, last week you may have heard a bunch of stuff about gravitational waves, and I, I kept getting asked about it over the weekend. <laughs> uh-huh. So, um, so I, it seems like it's something that people are interested in and and curious about, but aren't aren't really very sure what it is. Like they know it's a big breakthrough, but they don't really understand with what. So I'm going to do my best to try to explain gravitational waves if you haven't already read or seen Lauren's Lauren Grush's uh, excellent story and video. She does a good job of explaining it and I am going to try and then, you know, uh, hope hope to answer some questions about I'm gonna, gravitational I'm gonna, waves. I'm going to I'm going to poke in with questions constantly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good. So, okay. So here is the background. The uh, gravitational waves were predicted by Albert Einstein in 1918. They're part of this theory of general relativity. Now, as you may know, general relativity is in conflict with uh, what we understand goes on with very small particles. It's one of the reasons why things like um, string physics exist to try to um, make relativity and quantum physics talk to each other mm-hmm. because they shouldn't both be true. And it looks like they probably both are. <laughs> so something weird is going on. And so gravitational waves fi- confirming their existence um, confirms a big part of general relativity um, and is sort of, you know, potentially something that uh, allows physicists to say, okay, we know this part of the theory checks out. Let's go next. And one of the things, this is just a personal note, one of the things that bugs me about way th- the way that science gets taught is you don't get taught the failures, you only get taught the successes. Sure. And so in that spirit, uh, I'm going to tell you gravitational waves have definitely, people have definitely announced finding them a few times before and just have been wrong. Uh-huh. Like that, so this this may also be wrong. I just want to be super clear: these may not really be gravitational waves. Well, so how do, how are they discovered? Because we know that gravity exists to a certain degree, or I mean, maybe we don't. But okay, <laughs> well, it's, it, that's actually a little complicated. Sure. Um, okay. So, relativity, as you know was the theory that sort of moved us from the Newtonian understanding of physics where space and time are separate entities and they're fixed and they're Mm -hmm. constant, right? So time doesn't stretch or bend. Uh, Space is basically the same all over. And it turns out that that's not right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, That space and time are the same thing. Um, They're space-time. And that's kind of the medium in which we're all sitting. And so the way that gravity works in, in this understanding, which is, is different from Newtonian understanding of gravity, where bodies are intrinsically attracted to each other. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> to go back to dirtbag science Sorry. for a minute. 
but so uh, essentially w- what happens is that when you have a heavy object, they actually warp space time around them. Right. So like imagine a, a bowling ball in a blanket, basically. It'll, it'll pull the blanket down. You'll, yeah. you'll see the, the, the dip in the blanket from the bowling ball. Right. That's, that's what a planet or a sun does in space time. Yeah. And then, you know, a smaller ball would then sort of roll along the blanket in a way that, that, that is essentially gravity, right? So that's, that's um, imagine like a marble rolling around on right. that blanket. Can what I, happens when it gets near the bowling ball? <laughs> can, I, can I interject with a pop cultural example of this? Go for it. In the movie Interstellar, which is bad, is a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> but the best part of it involves a, a planet that is larger than Earth and has a higher gravitational pull. And also time does weird things when you go to it. I don't know mm-hmm. how scientifically accurate it is, but to my understanding, with my layman's understanding of gravity and space time and all that, it was uh, it was kind of cool. Yeah, I'm, I, I think that's a great example. Okay. So I'm, um, glad, I'm glad I'm on the right page via movies. <laughs> so, okay. So, but when, when objects move, like whether it's, you know, you or me walking down the street or the moon or our entire solar system, we cause ripples in the space time. Um, and those are gravitational waves. So every object that moves creates gravitational waves. Now, because we're relatively small, ours are so small that they're almost impossible to measure. But... If you have something very large, like, for instance, two black holes crashing into each other, it becomes a little easier to measure. Now, we're not close to the two black holes that are crashing into each other, thank goodness. That seems yeah, like that, a cataclysmic event. That seems like it would affect a lot of um, areas of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> it would be uncomfortable, I think. But so, you know, when that happened, you know, scientists were like, hey, that's, that's a really great gravitational wave producing event. Why don't we see if we can sense them? Now, the way that that happens uses very sensitive instrumentation that can be easily disrupted. So, like, for instance, for a while, the instrument uh, that the LIGO group was using was detecting bumps on the road outside because it was so sensitive that any time a car went over the, bu- the bump, they would get a reading. Oh, okay. So, so they have, like, again, like, they're, be cautious about this. This, this could be a mistake. It might not be. It might be a huge breakthrough. It might be the biggest breakthrough in physics that we'll see in our lifetimes, but it might also not be. But so there are two observatories in Louisiana and Washington State. Um, Both of them are shaped like a giant L, and they have lasers that they bounce off of mirrors. And changes in the amount of time it takes for the laser to bounce off the mirror indicate a gravitational wave. Okay. Because when a gravitational wave passes, one mirror becomes closer while the other one retreats, right? Like Whoa. you see, like, okay. right? You see the, the movement as you might see, like, if you were at a pool and you dropped a bowling ball into the pool, you might notice the things that are floating on the surface of the pool move. Right. Interesting. Right. So the two, the two, um, the two black holes are the bowling ball in this metaphor. Okay. So the, the measurement, like what it's measuring then is... Is it a camera? Like, how is this being sensed? That is a good question. I'm not sure specifically how it's being sensed. It has something to do with the the, the uh, it's it's the, the the amount of time it takes the le- the laser to travel. So it's uh, a measurement at least of time. Okay. Um, but I mean, it's very very small. Okay. The gravitational waves only change the mirror by about one ten thousandth the size of a proton. Protons, oh. in case you don't remember, are part of the atom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it's this is this is a really really tiny shift, um, and and you know there are a lot of possible interferences. So let's you know so, hope for the best. So but you were telling me about some of the applications of this, and one of it involves being able to see objects in space that we might not otherwise be able to see because of their gravitational waves. And by, by I use the word see. I You're using absurd. air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> see. Uh-huh. I, yeah. No. Um, so what's interesting about this is it's hard to measure a black hole directly because black holes don't give off light. That is the definition of right. a black hole. I mean, they do eject some energy, but that whatever. So being able to observe entities that don't give enough light for us to be able to see them with most of our visually oriented telescopes um, is, is, is really exciting. Yeah. What they're hoping to do is be able to measure things like black holes that don't emit a lot of light but exist because they, you can measure their gravitational you know, movement, right, basically. Right. And so 
They're hoping to launch a gravitational wave detector into space. It's called the LISA Pathfinder mission, and it's a partnership between NASA and ESA. What they're going to do essentially is go out to space, take advantage of the fact that they can make their detector a lot bigger uh, for shooting lasers back and forth, um, because there isn't a lot out there, it turns out. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're going to try to, you know, detect and observe that way. Wouldn't it be terrifying if they realized that there was this, like, enormous body that, like, took up half of our night sky that we had not seen at all and was just, like, huge and invisible? Like, I don't know. Something about that is, like, inherently creepy to me. Like, there's been this huge planet that we haven't been able to see for millions of years. Oh, my gosh. You know, Emily, I I think that's a great premise for a sci-fi movie that we should write. It's been right in front of us the entire time. Yeah, that would be so scary. Um... Uh, well, that's uh, that's exciting. That's cool. I mean, I, I, I never really thought of it as a question of whether or not we were able to observe gravity. It was always just something you kind of took for granted. But that's uh, that's really interesting. Well, speaking about uh, immense gravitational pull, Kanye West put out a new album this past week. Um, I, as you may recall, uh, regular ESP re- reader or readers slash listeners slash just feelers um, may recall that I was about to go out to the the listening party uh, at, at Madison Square Garden that Kanye West was having and was debuting his album at. I... Um, that remains one of about two times I've listened to this album for reasons that if you've been keeping up to date, you would know. I don't have title. I'm not in a big hurry to get title. And Kanye has announced that title will be the only way that you can listen to the album for the foreseeable future. But who knows? He could change his mind next week. He often does. Yeah, I, feel. I mean, this uh, this entire process of the life of Pablo, as it's now known, has been... Um, as as Jameson Cox put it in his review of the album on our site, which you should definitely read, has been an act of radical transparency um, and creative transparency uh, in, a, in a way that I think has, has definitely been divisive. I am um, I, a fan of it in principle. I, I think it's really interesting to have an album that, like, potentially he could be changing and updating constantly within title if it only exists on a streaming site um if that's like the only legal way to listen to this album which would be a first um for an album that would be fascinating that the artist could go in and tinker with the work itself not just release new versions of it or do a new special edition of it but actually go in and and change stuff in it and have it still be the life of pablo like that's very interesting to me. Um, I wonder, though, <laughs> given the example of George Lucas, <laughs> right? Whether that's a yeah, good idea. Yeah, I mean, that's there's two sides to it. You know, it means it means that uh, you know, you it, it's it's a little it puts it a little more on a continuum with say TV, which is something that is continually added to, but remains the show, remains the original body um and you know the 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 next season of a show that you like might not be something that you love but it's still a part of a show that you are uh, a fan of until you decide that you're not um so that from like a philosophical standpoint I think it's really interesting I feel like sometimes it's hard to tell how intentional Kanye is being about this stuff and how much of it is just like kind of a great conceptual art accident he's like wandered into but I you know there this album is not very compelling like sonically on its own and it's got you know problems in it shall we say but there's a new chapter of this problem written during the gram the grammys when taylor swift came back at kanye for um, lyrics about her that are in the song famous in which he Oh, about how he's so famous, he made well, her famous. Well, you know, he could still have sex with her because he made her famous, like implying that, um, one, that he made her famous, I, I, we're assuming via his interrupting her speech at the 2009 VMAs, 
And two, that uh, anybody who, quote, makes you famous, you owe sex to. I mean, it's jokes and it's provocation and it's Kanye doing Kanye. It's just the shtick is a little thin now. And I think that's where a lot of people have sort of landed with this. We're used to Kanye saying provocative things, saying often misogynistic things, showing us misogynistic images. That's been a part of the Kanye journey and you kind of take it all if you're in you kind of just have to it's not that you're co-signing it it's just a part of the experience of this artist but this you know when the art itself when the music itself is not immediately rewarding you know even even Yeezus was a little bit like jarring the first time um, you listen to it but then you know it's an incredibly rewarding album not my favorite Kanye West album but it's good it's it's a it's an achievement And, and it was slapped together in a similarly haphazard way I, you know, I think I think that there is that sort of balance that people have where how much am I actually being respected and rewarded as a fan versus how much am I kind of putting up with and, and giving a pass to some of the more egregious things that Kanye's been getting up to. I mean, that's absolutely right with a lot of different kinds of Oh, for of sure. I'm... You know, I we see this discussion about misogyny with rap yeah. a lot, and I wish it would happen more often. Oh with my pop god, yes, and with rock Thank you. as well. Like that's that's I think the thing that I always I think that makes a lot of people who seem like they're playing devil's advocate or something with rap, um, or def, you know, seemingly defending lyrics like that. It's like well. I, I, it's it's <laughs> we were talking about vinyl last week it exists in rock it's always existed in rock it's always existed in a male dominated music industry and yep. other genres get more of a pass than other mm-hmm. some genres but i don't know you've listened to it liz what did you what did you think so I, I should be clear. I've only listened to it twice. I'm not going to pretend that this is my final. Well, we're uh, we're on the same page. Uh, then, so, yeah. <laughs> um, but it did feel to me less ambitious than other work he's done. Yeah, and not as interesting. Right. Yeah. It's it's. I think there's less agreement between the different songs. I think that's the the one thing you can say about Yeezus is that all feels like one album. That It's sonically yeah, consistent, for yeah, sure. Yeah, it feels like a document of a place and a time and a thing that he was going through and really holds together and, and listens through great. And same with Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Same with all of his albums, really. They're mm-hmm. all, like... They're cohesive. Pr- yeah, they're pretty solid. This The concept seems to be so meta and so much about the completion of the album that you know gets a little weedsy just as a listening experience which I don't think he's really that interested in it as a a listening experience though well but if you're not that interested in as a listening experience then why do you expect anybody to buy it yeah it's like it's sort of uh it feels a little bit uh masochistic on his part to do this and Mm -hmm. I that, that's like a weird I, I know that sounds weird but it's just like when you're an artist like Kanye who has grappled so much with uh, how far he's come how different his life looks now than it used to like just gra- like grappling with the ideas of being an asshole and being like uh, you, you know having being entitled to do things that he would not be entitled to do were he not famous I feel like some of this album is just like a testing of that premise how much can I actually get away with and still have still pack arenas still um you know by the way Madison Square Garden was not packed I should say that um I really I really thought it would be um I don't know if they were not selling the all the seats in it because there was one section that was definitely empty but uh it was not mobbed it did not feel like a concert it felt like a school assembly it was great still great (laughs) uh but it was not as rabid as I've seen crowds be for Kanye before. But yeah, but it's also a fashion show. So there's that. Well, one of the things that I think also distinguishes this is that with a lot of other albums, there's an entry point for non-famous people who just also live. (laughs) And a lot of this seems to be consumed. Like I'm thinking about real friends, for instance, Um, Mm -hmm. and, and famous too, actually. A lot of this is consumed with the mechanics of fame and, If there's one thing I've learned from following certain artists' careers, it's that those albums are often uninteresting and people don't relate to them. 
And now this may yeah. not be the case for this album. I don't know. But that seems to be a recurring thing is that when you write about how rich and famous you are, you immediately, unless you're doing it as, as a celebratory way so that people can imagine what it's like to be rich and famous, if right. you're just complaining about it. Which he's definitely it. done. He's, right. He's done lots of that stuff. I feel like it was funny. Um, <laughs> the, the co- Not to go completely off topic. The cover for um, Zayn Malik's album mm-hmm. was uh, was released the other day or yesterday, maybe. Um which is a baby picture of him with tattoos. And it's very reminiscent of, of Lil Wayne's album covers with like the school pictures of him as a kid with like the teardrop tattoo and all of that. Like that was, and, and it's a, it's a big thing in rap and it's a big thing. You know, there are kind of the more humorous or weird approaches to it, like the Wayne albums. But then there's like, you know, uh, one of the covers for good kid, mad city, Kendrick Lamar's album is, you know, an old family photo of him, you know, and it's like, there's, there's always that, that that impulse to put um, where you came from at, at the fr- at the front and center and and make that never let people forget that and I think that's a huge part of rap and I think now Kanye doesn't have that Kanye's story now is about like being essentially a Kardashian now and it's like the, the, we know his origin story so well that it's like he can't really return to that well anymore I mean he does but it's not. You know, I feel like he's more interested in exploring what it means to be married to Kim Kardashian and have a fashion line and stuff. Which is fine. But I'm just thinking specifically about like Madonna's career, like the point at which it tanked was the point where she started complaining about being famous. (laughs) Right. Right. She stopped being interesting. And it was, you know, yes, I'm sure it's annoying to have paparazzi follow you everywhere. But also you make a ton of money. It's like one of those things where it's. The 50. Well, everybody. Th- this is the thing. Everybody wants to fantasize about being rich and famous, but also everybody wants to fantasize about being bored with being rich and famous. Like <laughs> that's the whole appeal of um, Sofia Coppola movie. <laughs> <laughs> but any, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure my opinion will shift on this. I don't know that this album is ever destined to be like in my top three of Kanye albums, but like. It's been an interesting ride, and it's been interesting to see Verge readers just be apoplectic with why we're covering this so much. But, like, if you want to talk about an intersection of tech and entertainment, this is it. Like, somebody is just doing open channels on their entire creative process for an album, and even if the album is not to your liking, it's a little bit unprecedented, so it's it's worth our attention. Right. I mean, that whole the whole release strategy is unprecedented for any kind of major I, artist. I don't know if I would call it a strategy, but... <laughs> But it's yeah, I mean there there is some strategy for sure. It's it and and that's why it had people's attention. It's just like we we're not used to this. We're used to this is like the more blown apart version of Beyonce just surprised dropping an entire album. Like this is the reverse of that, which is sort of yeah, it's it's messy and it's cringy and sometimes you want him to just like be banned from Twitter but right because there's so much of his persona tied up in the way that people understand and appreciate his art that it's hard to really separate the two yeah yeah well um well we'll maybe we'll check back in later maybe I'll have an epiphany about it but um but right now we uh, we're gonna go over to an interview that you have you wanna you wanna tell us a little bit about who you talked to this week yeah so um as some of you may know, I am a tremendous Hunter Thompson fan. Uh, speaking of someone whose identity is is firmly <laughs> tied up in his work, totally. uh, and and who is also it at times and in ways uh, difficult to cope with. <laughs> uh, sometimes it sucks to be a Hunter Thompson fan. But his son uh, Juan, who is uh, an IT guy, normal, wow, normal dude. Uh, wow! Yeah, uh, wrote a book about his dad, and uh, he was kind enough to come on and talk to us a little bit about parents and and addiction and what it was like growing up around Hunter Thompson. And so he he is here um, from his promotional tour for Stories I Tell Myself, his book that is out now. Oh, can't wait to hear it. One of the things that I wasn't expecting reading this was um, how much of it uh, I think is is pretty relatable for those of us who don't have celebrity parents, right? You know, like the difficulty of navigating relationships with your parents is <laughs> is something that's pretty universal. Right. Or, you know, family members with substance abuse issues. I mean, between those two, you know, you've, you've covered a pretty good chunk of the population right there. Yeah, I'd say. 
um, which actually is something that I did want to talk with you about that's in the book. Because, you know, the um, absolute volume of drugs that uh, Hunter consumed was certainly something that was part of his mythos. And so it was interesting to see um, the consequences of that sort of arising in the book. Not only that you didn't necessarily want to deal with his alcoholism, but also, you know, towards the end of his life, how that kind of impeded his ability to recover from surgery and these sort of horrific descriptions of of alcohol withdrawal. Were, Were those sections difficult to write? Yeah, yeah. Partially because, you know, they're, they're, they're really not flattering. You know, Hunter in the hospital was, was not at his best. But I felt it was important to, you know, describe those times as clearly as I could because it, it was an important part of our development of our relationship. And then, uh, you know, writing about how the, the alcohol and drugs really started to I mean, take their toll doesn't really even begin to describe it. I mean, I really, they were really, you know, just, just, just tearing down his body. Yeah. Um, by the end, and and that was it was just so so sad, uh, you know, for me, and and certainly certainly for him too, as he realized that, uh, you know, he was losing his ability, he, he was losing his independence, that he couldn't he couldn't go where he wanted, he couldn't, you know, travels he wanted, uh, you know, and you know, eventually, I mean, he couldn't even, you know, control his own bowels. I mean, that was that just so. Uh, so sad and I think humiliating for him. It took me a while to decide to, you know, to include those parts, but it just, it, it, it felt really important not to, if I had chosen to leave them out because, well, you know, boy, you know, those are really humiliating, uh, you know, things for, for Hunter to undergo. And so, well, I'll, I'll just, I'll just keep that under the cover. So, yeah. you know, people don't, don't see that. That just, it, it just felt, it didn't feel right, and when I would think, well, you know, what would what would Hunter want? Would he want me to include this? And I always just got this 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 strong feeling of, you know, tell the truth, tell them, just just tell the truth. Now, had he been alive, it would have been a, a completely different thing. That would have been much more difficult decision, and I'm not sure it would have been the right one. But given that that he was dead and he didn't have to, you know, deal with the public knowledge of this stuff. I think, I really think um, he would have been disappointed if I had, if I just hidden that away. Right. I mean, he was known for his honesty, I think, at least in his writings. Um, Like I'm thinking of Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72, where um, he has these McGovern staff members that will talk pretty openly to him. He's like, you know, none of this is going to be off the record. It's, it's all going to be out there. And then once McGovern starts to starts to win, they just uh, evaporate as soon as they see him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the quotes I love is, uh, don't know exactly how it goes, but basically, you know, he went to cover that race and he had no intention of uh, staying on as a Washington correspondent. So, he, you know, he didn't care if he burned his sources because he wasn't going to need them, you know, to get his White House press press credentials. <laughs> and I love that because he had the freedom to write exactly what he saw and thought without worrying about, uh, you know, pissing people off. Yeah. I mean, that that is certainly one of his virtues as a journalist, you know, was, was that kind of honesty, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, an unwillingness to play games. The reason that I, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about those sort of difficult later years, um, is that as a fan, it always sort of bothered me that he never did another book-length work, you know, of, of entirely new material um, after Lono. Um, so it's heartbreaking to discover the reason why. Yeah. And I know that must have been difficult for him as well, uh, especially since he had spent so much of his, his life writing and, and really caring about the written word. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think being a writer was the most important thing to him. You know, it was more important than, I think, than family, than relationships. I think being, uh, you know, being a, a great writer is was what he wanted most of all from a really early age. And it became progressively harder and harder for him to sustain the concentration, you know, to write longer pieces or even those, uh, you know, the columns of 1,000 words, 1,500 words were, were, you know, became just these Herculean efforts. And I think it was... You know, I believe that that was one of the factors in his decision to, to kill himself was when he, he realized that he could no longer write 
And, uh, and if you can no longer write, what's the, what's the point? You know, why, why wait around? I, I mean, I, I am no Hunter Thompson, but I certainly think that if you were to take away this thing that I have for most of my life now um, drawn a great deal of meaning uh, and power from, I, I too would be left somehow adrift or afloat, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So that's certainly uh, a, a feeling I can understand. Uh, there are a few things worse than, than sitting down to write something, knowing you having something important to say and nothing coming out. Yeah, and then... Yeah, on top of that, the knowledge that this is not just a temporary case of writer's block. It's just not going to go. It, it's not going to get better. I am i am sure he's just felt despair at that thought. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I sort of drew from his work was he talks about having rewritten, just retyped <laughs> um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fitzgerald, um, The Great Gatsby, in order to learn how the the, the writing worked. And for me, the, the thing that I ended up rewriting was um, Flannery O'Connor to see how her writing worked. But that technique is really good. And there was like all of this incredible technique in his in his work. So, you know, this is clearly someone who was very thoughtful, especially about how his voice would sound, which maybe is why people feel such a personal connection to him, because it really sounds like he's talking to you from the page. I completely agree. I mean, he, he really, he took writing very seriously. You know, this was not, this was not just, I think some people may think that, you know, like, you know, got drunk and took a bunch of drugs and pull out his notebook and, you know, scribble things down and, you know, and that's all there was to it. Um, you know, when the reality is, no, he'd been, he'd been, you know, learning to be a writer since he was like 16 or 17 and, and taking it very seriously. And he really did pay attention to things like the, just the rhythm of a sentence. You know, there's the right word to convey the right meaning, but there's also the right word with the right, you know, the right rhythm. And uh, and he really he really cared about that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the things that I always found a little confusing when people would talk about fear and loathing in Las Vegas is that there's no way, <laughs> no way he was writing that book while he was on all the drugs that he discusses in that book, not least because some of those drugs seem to be imaginary. Um, you know, you need to be maybe not totally sober, but somewhere approximating sobriety uh, in order to do that kind of serious work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I totally agree. Uh, and one of the, you know, the odd things about Hunter is that he drank a lot, but he was, I don't ever remember ever seeing him obviously drunk, you know, in the sense of stumbling, slurring his words, uh, any of that. He was uh, he was a maintenance drinker and just happened to have a you know a really high threshold. But uh, I think you're absolutely right that when he sat down to write that book, uh, you know he wasn't he wasn't all strung out on drugs. He was uh, he was very focused on all right. How do I how do I make this a really really well written and tight story? Yeah, I mean that's that's part of why it's still fun to read, frankly. <laughs> You know, yeah, and also, you know, having lived in Oakland, uh, that's that's where I am. You know, one of the things that's most remarkable to me about Hell's Angels, which is sort of before he got into the Gonzo style, um, is, you know, if you read the end of it, there's that lovely romantic image of the motorcycle, but in the middle, there's this discussion of what we're going to do with men like the Hell's Angels when there's no room for them in society which is still as as prescient <laughs> now as it was then, except that I think Hunter maybe didn't see the rise of the prison industrial complex and that that would be what we would do with them. But uh, I, I'm curious to know, how often do you do you reread his work? What is that like for you? Oh, boy. Um, it's actually been a while since I've sat down to read cover to cover. I started reading Fear um, and Loathing in Las Vegas uh, a few months ago. And that's never been a one of my favorite books of his, but um, I thought, you know what, I gotta I gotta read this again because I probably haven't read it in 20 years, you know, and read it again with uh, from a different perspective. And and both, uh, you know, reading that and you know, some of the uh, you know fragments from Fear and in the Campaign Trail or even Hell's Angels, is I, I'm just always just struck by how well written it is, you know. And with Hell's Angels, it's a more straightforward style, but it's still it's just so tight, you know. There, there, there just aren't sentences or phrases. You think, well, that was, that was kind of awkward. And why did he put this in here? And I mean, he was a real craftsman. And then, even when he, I, I call it like discovering his Gonzo voice, it, it, it appears to be a more sort of spontaneous, you know, form. But I don't think it really is. I think it was just a, a more, 
like raw and powerful, but he still was, but he still crafted it really carefully. And I'm just, I'm just always struck by that of, uh, aside from what he actually wrote about just what a fine writer he was, you know, and then separately the fact that he would just say outrageous and true things about, uh, you know, Nixon, I mean, a sitting president and calling him just all these horrible, horrible names, but not, not with the intent of just insulting him, but to, to make a point about this, this man is a very, very corrupt, corrupt man who should not be president, but saying in a way that was both funny and powerful. Now, one of the things that I noticed about your book is that you didn't even attempt to try to imitate that voice, which is, you know, as you rightly point out, highly stylized, you know, this, this, it's crafted. Um, but there are these moments, and I really enjoyed them, where um, it sounds like some of the things that I remember from Hunter's writing were a little bit um, family language. Like oh, one of the phrases you use over and over again is, this is madness. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know like oh my god <laughs> here he is <laughs> uh, that's funny uh because you're right I, I i was i was really deliberate in in not trying to to imitate his style at all i mean first of all i don't think anyone has ever successfully imitated his style and nor should they try and it's certainly not my style and uh so I, I was really careful to try to avoid, you know, any 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 hint of that. But sounds like maybe a few things slipped through, you know. But, <laughs> but I but I really was, you know, I, I was really careful to try to try to avoid that. Even some of the phrases, you know, which is sort of tempting at times because you know, I heard them so much. Or that you, you, you're right; they're kind of like 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 family phrases. And that's interesting. I, I I hadn't really I hadn't really noticed that. It it it, um, it stuck out to me about the third time you did it. I think you do it a couple of times, <laughs> and it was like this. No, my family has family phrases too, and it was one of those funny things where it was like, oh right, he was using a family phrase publicly when he was writing. <laughs> <laughs> like this was just how this guy talked. Yeah, well, that's 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 one of the the interesting things about you know doing the readings or or, or interviews is 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 hearing some of the you know, the observations people have about the book and the things that I just didn't see them, you know, they're just too close to it or, uh, or whatever. And, and things like that. It's a, that's a, something I hadn't really thought about, but it's, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of nice as long as I didn't get carried away with it. I wouldn't so say, like, you all right, well, a little, a little bit of a, you know, uh, unconscious bond there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it sort of feels like, you know, of course it is its own style, but there are these moments where you sort of see the lineage in the same way that when you see a, a parent, a child out together, you're like, oh, yeah, those people are definitely related. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I have I have one more question for you. and um, It has to do with you write very uh, movingly about how memory can change and how, you know, when you were researching the book. You found things that you had forgotten about, including letters that you yourself had wrote that you've forgotten about. What was the process of unearthing information for this like, and how did that, that change the way that you understood your father? Well, when I started, I knew that I didn't want to do a biography. That was, that was I have not, you know, not neither the, the skill or, you know, really the interest in doing that kind of scholarly work. And there are certainly other people who are be much better at it than me. So I, I was really focused on, all right, this is, this is going to be a memoir. So that means it's what I remember. And I started talking to some other people with the, the idea of, you know, finding out, okay, well, well, what really happened? Or is there stuff that I forgot about that, uh, you know, I should know. And then I, I pretty quickly realized that other people's memories were just as unreliable as mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, what they said might or might not be true as well. Uh, and so I thought, well, this is, this is sort of pointless because I'll just be adding more unreliable subjective perspectives to my own. And so, you know, with a, with a few exceptions, I decided I'm, I'm going to go with what I remember uh, if if something comes up like with those letters in the archive and it makes sense to include it, it certainly will. And that and that was I, I still can't believe that I I totally forgot about both receiving that letter uh, from Hunter when I went to college and then the letters I wrote back to him, you know, and then to find them in the archive. It's like my God, how there's such significant letters uh, in our relationship and that I just completely forgot about them until I just came across them in a file. Uh, it's just amazing. And with those letters, I mean, the one thing that was surprising is when I, I did find, you know, the letter I had sent him, and he had made these annotations on it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that, that was, was uh, <laughs> that was harsh. <laughs> and I I use that in uh, when I do a reading, and it's still uh, upsetting, you know, that uh, that he had these thoughts, and it's it, 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 it's interesting and strange that he that he felt the need to record them, you know, on the on my letter. But there's just such a such a clash between the letter that he that he wrote me, which you know, which I, I know and he was totally sincere in writing that, and then his notes, which were not exactly supportive. So getting back to your original question, it's with some of the things that I learned, I just got some insights into, like, for example, that, how, how he was, I think, confused, frustrated, and more than that, like, there's almost a sense of, I was going to say disgust, but that's not quite it, but the sense of, I don't know what to do with this guy. He's, 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 just, he's, 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 he's a mess. And on the other hand, uh, coming across letters talking about how he was trying to raise money to pay for college, but he didn't want me to know because he didn't want me to be unduly stressed about, you know, whether uh, I was going to have to, you know, withdraw the next semester because he wasn't able to find the money. So there's just so much, just so much complexity. And I knew that going in, but, you know, finding, just finding more of these letters, just, uh, uh, just reinforced that he was not, he, he was not a, he was not a simple man and he didn't have, you know, even regarding me, not like he didn't have one viewpoint. Like this is how I see my son. He had different viewpoints depending on, I don't know, you know, what mood he was in that day. Or, and there's just no way to kind of collapse all that stuff down into one consistent person. You know, like my father was this. Well, no, he wasn't. He was a whole bunch of things. And there's no way to reconcile those. You know what I mean? It just that's just who he was. He was he was a he was a just a huge bundle of competing forces and impulses. You just never know which one was going to come out on a, a certain day. And that that's, that's who he was. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of Lewis Hyde, a former professor of mine, wrote this book called Trickster Makes This World about trickster figures and art. Um, mm. So you have like Hermes, yes. not quite male and not quite female, but both. And you have, you know, throughout various different kinds of folklore, you have these people who don't fit into any one neat slot and in so doing mm -hmm. by by pr proceeding through the the sort of the the fabric of their society they tend to create more openness for the rest of us um and so i think of that mm -hmm. a lot when i think about hunter actually because you do get this sense of him as a very strong moralist but also this sense of him mm -hmm. as a totalist at the same time yeah that's a really good point I, i'd never thought of him in that terms but I, I think that's a really i know that's a, that's a great point yeah and always, you know, shifting and never being quite sure of what his motives were. That's a, that. That's really interesting. Thanks for pointing that out. Well, sure. <laughs> um, listen, Juan, I want to thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. All right. Well, I want to thank you uh, so much for listening. Uh, that's that's what we got today. Um, that's all we got. All we got. <laughs> Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, be sure to subscribe to Verge ESP on Apple, on Apple Tunes, iTunes. on Apple Tunes, on iTunes, on Tidal. On Tidal. Tidal. Subscribe to oh, us on Tidal. Tidal exclusive. Um, <laughs> and do and leave us a, a, a review or yes. a rating if, if your heart so desires. No, no, whether or not your heart desires or not, just do it. And uh, follow us on, on Twitter. I'm at Emily Yoshida and Liz is at Miss Lopato, MS Lopato. And is there anything else? Yeah, SoundCloud, all that stuff. Just, yeah. Just uh, tell you. Tell just your follow friends. us. Just like follow us around. Yeah, physically. <laughs> all right. Uh, that's it for us this week. Bye. Bye.